Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Michael Lamb is Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. His research has two main areas of focus. On the one hand, he examines forensic interviewing and the factors affecting children's adjustment. His other research documents the roles played by mothers and fathers in shaping children's adjustment and well-being, and examines co-parenting after divorce, noting that family relationships are one of the most important factors influencing psychological adjustment. He edits several academic journals and is editor of The Role of Father in Child Development, first published in 1976 and now in its fifth edition. Welcome to this podcast, Professor Michael Lamb. Michael, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. And given you're the Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Cambridge, we're all dying to know how you're getting on with lockdown and if you have any um, tips for coping for the rest of us. Well, I, I must say that I'm really pleased that I don't have to teach online. I, I do find that quite difficult, not being able to see an audience and, and talk to people, uh, which of course is a problem for the podcast as well. For the most part, I'm learning to enjoy a very simplified life, spending most of my time just with my wife and occasionally my daughter is able to, to join us. But fortunately, I live in a really small town, so it's possible to take long walks and get outside. And that's made it a, a lot easier than I think lockdown is for a good many people. I can't imagine how difficult this would be, especially with the young children, but for families in general. Absolutely. And of course, it's sort of amplified and sort of intensified the period of time we spend with each other. And as I'm sure you know, more than most people, that that comes with lots of benefits and opportunities, but also lots of challenges. I know that your research is vast and you've, you know, you've been working in many areas associated with family life for a long time. I'd like to start by asking you about your most recent research. I always ask researchers, what are you doing? now that you're excited about or what are you you know reading about in your own field you know what are you mulling over in your own head at this time in your own area well for the the last 20 years or so our, our concern has been focused on helping children who have been abused to describe that abuse to others who may be able to intervene and to help and over the last decade or so, that has focused especially on children who have been abused, either physically or sexually, um, but are reluctant to talk about that. And our goal has been to try to understand the, the barriers and to find ways that, that one can make children feel more comfortable, to trust the adults who are talking to them, and allow them to 
describe those experiences of abuse. And so the, the big issue that that's sort of been on the front of, of my agenda now for quite a while has been reluctance on the part of children, developing ways of trying to overcome that reluctance and to create the sorts of circumstances that make it easier for children to to describe that abuse to to particularly forensic interviewers who are there and able to help access the types of legal interventions that that might make the children's circumstances better. Most recently, we've been looking at children developing techniques where it takes more than a single session to develop sufficient uh, rapport and uh, trust on the part of children. So, you know, the, the interview itself is spread over more than one interview or session. Okay, and so so just in relation to what you were saying, I'm very conscious that people on the front line, as it were, in schools might be listening to this or, you know, and are very aware, obviously, of this whole area of safeguarding. And if they do spot signs of abuse, for example, they have procedures to follow. But also teachers, educators, people working in a pastoral role in a school, they would probably want to ask you, how do you open up that very gentle conversation about these very difficult conversations, you know, in that setting? Yeah, that's, a, I think, a very complicated and, and fraught area. Most of my work has been with the forensic interviewers, so the people who are a step back from the frontline teachers who may be the first people to whom children make some kind of tentative disclosure. I think the common concern is how you get children to move beyond the talking to the teacher to being willing to talk to some other kind of professional. The the dilemma, if I can use that term, is that children, of course, may know the teacher, may know the counsellor, and so may feel more comfortable tentatively disclosing something that's been happening to them that that's bothersome, that's worrisome, that may be abusive. And I think that the key message for those frontline people is that they should listen, that they should listen, present an openness to hearing what children have to say, and should be very careful not to probe, frankly, because through probing and pushing children, they may do two things. From the point of view of evaluating those allegations, there's the concern that the probing questions may be suggestive and may contaminate what the children are telling them. And the second concern is that by probing too hard, they may push the child in a direction towards what they fear may have happened rather than letting the child really describe in their own terms exactly what did happen to them. So there's a risk of of shutting down the child or creating a misleading account if those frontline people go beyond simply providing a assuring and 
non-judgmental ear to listen to what children have to say. Wonderful. It's obviously an extremely sensitive area where professionals and parents need to tread extremely carefully, as you say, within those first tentative moments where a child might be very gently suggesting, um, you know, or opening up that conversation. That's right. That's one area, Michael, that you've been working in. But I'm conscious that you have spent, you know, a, a long career looking at the role of fathers in children's development, which I'm really interested in exploring with you, if that's okay. Sure. And I know you've been editor of The Role of Father in Child Development, which was a academic journal, if I'm correct. No, it's a book. A book. It was a book. Yeah, first published in 1976 and now in its fifth edition. And I'd love to know what is in that fifth edition that potentially wasn't in it in 1976, how things have changed. Yeah, that's a great question because, of course, you know, questions like this are always very much set against the the context of the time. I think in the 1970s, we were in a very mother-focused period where there was a lot of emphasis on the critical role that mothers play in children's lives. Attachment theory had a very mother-focused analysis of how children first came to form social relationships and what role those relationships played in in children's development. And so in the, the first editions of those books, I think you see a focus on simply establishing the fact that children didn't only have relationships with their mothers, that from very early on, um, my own interest was in the infant period, although there were other contributors who talked about later portions of children's lives. But the, the focus was on simply demonstrating that indeed children could form more than one relationship and that those relationships could all be important psychologically and make meaningful contributions to children's lives. I think as the research has blossomed over the years, there's been a greater awareness or appreciation of that fact. I think relatively few people now contest the idea that children don't form multiple relationships early in their lives and that those relationships are important to to children's development. What's changed, I think, is an awareness of the complexity of children's lives and relationships and an understanding that the relationship between the two parents also plays a critical role in shaping the nature of and the importance of the relationships with each of those parents. So what's developed is, is a much more if if you like, a, a tapestry of a developmental context that binds together these multiple formative relationships rather than a much, much more simplistic focus on individual dyadic relationships. And I think if I'm correct that it's that diversity of attachment that children seem to benefit from hugely. So 
it's not all about relationship with mother. It's about, you know, the, 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 the family structure they live in, the communities they live in. It's about all of those relationships. Absolutely. No, I think that's speaking very personally about it. I think as my research has evolved, as my thinking about children's development has evolved, I've come to really understand just how complex are the social relationships, just how important all of those factors are. It's not just mothers and fathers or siblings for that matter, but it's the family context, all of those relationships, the climate they create. And going beyond that, it's how they fit into wider communities, not only communities defined by extended family relationships, but uh, relationships with others in the community and how that community fits into the wider society. So I, I think, you know, we, we have to recognize that, that child development is very complex. There are, I think, almost no aspects of development that are uniquely and solely affected only by one particular relationship or one particular experience, but that developmental processes are complicated, they're interrelated, most aspects of development are multiply determined, and from the point of view of, of a researcher, that makes it excessively complicated to, to understand. But I think it we've now got a much more realistic sense of how children develop and how important all of these factors are in, in shaping children's development. What we have to look at is, is to try and understand, you know, from the perspective of the child, how this process unfolds. Children do initially experience the world primarily through the relationships within the family. But even when they are mostly being shaped by the relationships with their mothers and fathers and grandparents and, and siblings, each of those people is, of course, a product of not only early experiences that, that they had, but their enduring experiences, whether of fraught relationships within the family, whether of coping with poverty, whether, to think of a contemporary moment, of dealing with the stresses of isolation and lockdown and inability to access other social and, and professional resources, that all of those factors are affecting children indirectly from the very beginning. And then, of course, as they themselves start to explore that wider world, start to go to playgroups or childcare settings or school, that they become directly affected by those sorts of factors, as well as indirectly affected through their parents. And, you know, it is about uh, one of the things I'm always reiterating in my parent talks is that we know that parental mental health, how parents feel mentally and also their own sort of confidence in their own abilities to parent plays a very important role. And I'm really interested 
in that whole area of empowering the parents to have greater belief in their own abilities, because I believe that that does shape children's sense of self as they grow into, you know, adulthood. I think that's a, a great point, and I'm I'm really glad you you raised that because I think it's fair to say that over the last seventy or eighty years, there's been a I think a widespread disempowerment of parents. You know, I think there's been the emergence of so-called experts who have, through popular media, through books, have conveyed the message that there are important skills that need to be acquired through these experts. And I I don't want to diminish the fact that there is expert knowledge, that that can be helpful to parents. But I think that the unwelcome subtext has been to tell parents that in and of themselves that they're not good enough, that they need this expert. And I think that has led many parents to feel that they shouldn't trust their instincts, that they shouldn't rely on their sense of what's best for their children and how to promote their children's development. Uh, And I think there have been cases where we've sort of gone too far, where it has disempowered parents, where they sort of feel they have to go to the expert to get information. And, you know, if you go into, well, I was going to say it into any bookshop, I guess these days we're not going into bookshops. But when one can, or if you look at, at bookshops online, there are a plethora of books that purport to provide what's portrayed as essential information. And I think it's important to to keep those in context, to recognize that they may be useful sources of information, but they're actually only useful sources if parents do have a sense of themselves as powerful, as effective, as critically important players in their children's lives, that they may get some uh, additional input and uh, valuable input from those resources, but that ultimately it's really what's critically important, I think, is for parents to be authentic, to be themselves, to feel confident in what they bring to their children's lives. Because it's that those authentic experiences that are really most important for children's well-being. I just love the points that you make, you know, because in my practice, I try very hard to, I think parents are so used to having to to looking up to parenting experts when really what they need to know is that they already have the skill set. They already have the intuition. They already, they're the people who love their children most in the world. And it's that kind of confidence in their own abilities that we really need to unlock and foster. And secondly, I think I've written down the word agency. You know, it's such an important word that I always come back to that parents have been so disempowered and I think social media contributes to that because suddenly your your view or what you feel should be right for your children is lost in a sea of commentary and opinion. And I think that they need to hold their own. And it's hard to hold your own as a parent in a sea of parental peer pressure or going against the grain. And the third point I would make is 
whenever people say, but there's no instruction manual for parenting, I think what I would, I'd love to know your opinion about this, that I would gently suggest that the, the research evidence is there to potentially point us in the right direction, but then we might take that and, and sort of make it our own in family life and in our parenting. Absolutely. No, I, I, I really agree with you there. I mean, my feeling is that, especially early on, you know, every new parent, I think it's fair to say, feels overwhelmed the first time they they face their, their new baby and think about the challenges of parenting this child. And what we perhaps lose sight of is that that baby is actually a fantastic teacher and gives very clear feedback to two parents about what they need, what they're doing right, and what they can do differently. And it's learning to read those very simple signals and, and follow the baby signals early on that allows you to start this process, this dance of, of forming a relationship with a child. And as you say, to, to really believe in yourself and not be cowed by the notion that you as a an non-expert somehow can't cope with this task. Humans have been raising babies successfully for thousands of years. And until, you know, Benjamin Spock produced his book, what was now 70 odd years ago, we didn't have this notion that we needed to look outside to these so-called experts. At best, we look to our own parents, you know, usually the, the grandmothers who I think play a critical role in, in many societies and have always done that as kind of the repositories of wisdom that that's not rooted in a research literature. And, you know, as a researcher, of course, I do value that research. I do think we've learned a lot. I think we do have information to provide. But I think the key message we need to provide to parents is really believe in yourself. And as you said, you're the one who knows the child best. You're the one who is most committed to that child's well-being and trust that belief. I'm conscious as well that the, again, going back to parental confidence, that there seems to be so many indicators in the research that maternal confidence in particular seems to be quite an important factor in children's well-being, but also in their academic attainment. So our focus really needs to be a center on how parents feel about themselves and their own levels of self-esteem. It seems to be quite important. I think that is that's correct, and I, that plays out in multiple ways. I, I, you know, it, it plays out in the way we've been talking about up till now. Trust yourself, believe in your instincts, but I think it also plays out in, in a slightly more indirect way. If, if you don't value yourself, if you don't have self-esteem, then I think it's it's much harder to fully invest emotionally in in the relationship and and ultimately it's that passionate love that is a critical ingredient to these important early relationships 
So let's dwell a little bit on the early years because I think people are always taken aback when I share some of the amazing research on the importance of the infant-father interaction, which I think people just don't pay too much attention to. And I came across some lovely research where you know, we, we talk about how fathers interact differently with young children. And I just thought it was fascinating. And I know that you're expert in that, but I'd love to just talk about the early years and what we know is optimal for children. Well, I would start by by reiterating something that, that I was just saying uh, generally about the importance of authenticity. And I think it's particularly important when we're talking about fathers and babies, because even though I think it's the case that most new mothers and fathers both feel really challenged and inept when they first start to interact with their babies, that's especially true for fathers. And this feeling of incompetence may drive fathers to, you know, look for guidance. What should I do? What What's the right way for me as a father to behave? So the first thing I would emphasize is how important it is for fathers to interact with the baby the way you feel comfortable to, and as the child grows up, it's important to focus your interaction with the child on activities that you can share, that you can enjoy and and share the enjoyment with the child. And I emphasize that because you know, there's a lot of, of research suggesting, for example, that fathers' interactions with children are much more focused on play than on mothers' interactions. And that's true on average, and there are benefits that children get from playing with both mothers and fathers. Play brings excitement and can bring high levels of arousal and joy and pleasure as well as surprise. And to the extent that that fathers are doing that for their children, that's a great contribution. But there are some men who, you know, have have different characteristics and it's good for them to feel that, yeah, that's all right, that they should be the fathers that they want to be. You know, I I think, again, many fathers are perhaps more interested in in sports and taking kids to playgrounds early on and engaging in the rough and tumble and highly stimulating play in in a a playground and later they feel that it's it's their responsibility to get those children involved in organized sports and that's great for those parents for whom that's really the their focus but if you have a father who is who loves drawing and art, then it would be important for that father not to feel that he has to focus on the sports, but that he should do the things that he really enjoys doing with his child. So the the general message that, that I would give, and I think it applies equally to mothers and fathers, is to try to be true to yourself to try and create a relationship that's really authentic, that focuses on obviously what the child enjoys, but that also allows you to fully engage with and enjoy and and share a part of yourself with the child. Because that's really the critical ingredient for enduring relationships. 
And it's the enduring relationships and the authenticity, the self-esteem, as we talked about earlier, that those are really the critical issues that, that make those relationships particularly important for children. And you're really making, drawing me back to a question I'm always asked about quality time. Everybody knows quality time with your children is a good idea, but often parents have lost confidence in what that looks and feels like and how long it should last when actually what you're so beautifully suggesting is that we just need to trust our judgment and follow our instincts. And if half an hour feels fun and engaging and it comes to a natural end, that's fine. Or if it's a two hour fishing trip, that's fine as well. Exactly. No, absolutely. And it, and you know, the fitting it in and making sure that it, it is rewarding for, for both of you. I mean, the, the Quality time where you feel you have to do it by the clock is almost certainly not going to be truly quality time. And also making sure that I love the fact that children have always got so many great ideas. So if you're playing with them, you don't really need to come up with the game. They know what you they want you to do. And I think parents need to sit back and just let those moments unfurl, you know, as they should. Absolutely. Yes, no, I think there's a perhaps a particular problem for contemporary parents and, and people who are feeling that they have to parent in a certain way or follow certain guidance, that that may detract from the genuineness of their interactions and lead them not to pay as close attention as they should to the child signals what she's ready for now. Sometimes the highly arousing play will be absolutely perfect. Sometimes just sitting and, and snuggling while you read a book will be perfect. Sometimes curled up together in front of the television is, is going to be the perfect thing. And, you know, doing it together is part of what's critically important and being able to share it that that's what makes a relationship and i think i'm just fondly remembering my favorite parts of my entire childhood was being alone in the front seat with my father on long journeys when we could chat so it's not all about you know we don't need to you know bring out the you know do something extravagant it's it's the simplicity of those of that those moments of attention that's right, and I was just what, what you, when you said that about sitting in the in the car with your father r- reminds me of something else that that I only discovered through through personal experience as a parent. When my kids got into the non communicative phases of of being teenagers, the best interactions, the best conversations ended up taking place in exactly that context. When we would be driving somewhere, obviously not looking face to face because the driver had to be looking up the road, but it provided the context for some of the most meaningful and revealing conversations. And I've since then often encouraged uh, parents of teenagers to really prize those those moments, I suppose it's a little bit more difficult now that that 
smartphones are ubiquitous and, and those teenagers may be on their devices. But nevertheless, those, those settings actually can provide really valuable opportunities that we you know, maybe overlook by thinking, all I'm doing is driving her to her football practice. But actually, it, it can provide that, that critical moment for the, the revelation or the discussion of what's bothering that person. Yeah, it's such a lovely idea. And I think you're right. It's very disappointing that as soon as children get into the car, they have their phone or their iPad on a long journey when really we should be, you know, that's a rich context for conversations if we allow them to happen in that space. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, because I know it's it's often asked, about biological relatedness. So we know what high quality parenting looks like. We know about authenticity. We know that parents love their children more than anyone else in the world. But what if you're a step parent listening to this? I think the research indicates that biologic relatedness is not so much of a factor. Again, it's about the quality of the relationship or bond that you enjoy with that child. I think that's that's absolutely right. And, and certainly we know that you know, the relationships that, that non-biologically related parents develop to their children can be as deep, as profound, as rich in, in love and commitment as those who are biologically related. The, the challenge for, for step-parents, I think, depends on when they come into the child's life and perhaps in some cases, too, to the fact that the child may be involved in a, another relationship with with the biological parent, which creates loyalty conflicts or difficulties in the child's mind. I think that the the critical challenge for the the step parent is to think of the the very things we've been talking about up until now. Firstly, to be authentic, to be yourself. Certainly, not to try and replace the biological mother or the biological father, but to metaphorically offer yourself as, a, as another caring, loving adult who is willing to meet the child where she or he is and is willing to engage in the long, slow process of proving themselves. And, you know, the stepchild may often test that that step parent to see whether they are really able to to fill those needs it's the same thing that that we see in you know when when children are placed in foster families they they want to be sure that this this person is really committed to them is willing to meet them where they are is fully committed to making the kinds of emotional investments that those children need. And I think when, when you know, parents are, are willing to do that, it, it may not happen overnight, a, again, depending on the age of the child, depending on what the child's prior experiences were, and also on the quality of the relationship that step-parent has with the child's other parents. All of those factors are going to affect the process. But those relationships can be and, and ideally will become 
truly important parts of, of those children's emotional lives. And, and to go back to the metaphor I, I used earlier, part of the, the fabric or tapestry of relationships that make children's lives meaningful and that shape who they become. And, you know, you're making, I love the idea of, you know, a step parent is just another loving parent in a patchwork of loving relationships, hopefully. And, you know, just always attuning to the child seems to tell us what they need and we just respond to that authentically, then that we're onto a sort of a, onto a good path, a positive path. Exactly. Yes. Now, I do want to mention sort of authoritative parenting, which I talk a lot about in my talks and, you know, I come back to all the time, you know, and it does interest me that sometimes I've spoken to step parents who might be a bit afraid to be authoritative because they're not the sort of biological parent It just reminded me of that topic. But I think that if children are raised in an authoritative way, it seems to be that the outcomes across the board are, are highly positive. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, from all we can see, and there have now been you know, many decades of research on this, that, that that kind of authoritative, rational parenting is, is clearly much superior. I think the, the biggest problem for step-parents in particular is to feel comfortable setting limits, establishing rules, and being firm about those rules, explaining why they exist and why they're important, while avoiding the, the extreme alternatives. You know, the, the one extreme alternative is to become very authoritarian and metaphorically slam the fist down and say, you've got to do this because I'm your new mother, father, and you've got to do what I say. And the other extreme is the attempt to buy the child by being overly permissive and allowing the child to to do anything, to, to ignore any limits that have been set. I think that's the a challenge that lots of especially step parents face and i see many finding it difficult to to hew that that middle role so i think it's an important issue that that you raise here and one that that parents need to recognize as challenging and recognize how important it is to if you like stick with it um, and do assert the the authoritative position that ultimately is is best for children and I think is is best for these developing relationships. What's interesting, I think that the pressure on parents, particularly with the you know the advent of screen time and the, the the intense relationship that children have developed with digital technology now necessarily so in lockdown, the challenge it's very, very hard uh, you know for parents to be authoritative under those conditions often and i've i've found that my suggestions to be authoritative to put in rules and boundaries and negotiate your sort of digital values as a family some parents will view that as being very authoritarian so 
the line between authoritative and authoritarian is, is confusing for parents. And often they will say, you know, they don't want their child to be unhappy. So they'll give in to the meltdown. They want peace and quiet. So you know, some parents in this day and age think that holding the line and being authoritative is actually quite harmful to children. That's certainly what I've found. Yeah, I, I think the, you know, the, the critical dimension of authoritative parenting is, is not only having those lines, but being able to rationally discuss them, explain them, and effectively communicate, and it's difficult, you know, depending on the age of the child, why those sorts of boundaries or or rules are are really important. And I suppose in, in that context, it does involve being somewhat flexible and being able to recognize that. For example, in lockdown, we may need to have somewhat different rules than we had before but nevertheless, that there there should be some uh, lines, and whether they are as simple as the fact that you know no screens while we're having lunch or dinner together, and that that's a rule that applies to everybody that that both parents and children can't be scrolling through social media or answering emails during the meal time. And being able to explain why that's important and why everybody benefits not only from the time away from the media, but from the opportunities to be together, to actually share the the meal together, to discuss how their days have gone, which may sound a bit ironic if you've all been in the same space the entire day. But nevertheless, those are the important, I think, experiences that help make relationships meaningful. The other area that I'd like to cover is is sort of separation and divorce, because in my sort of review of, of your work, again, some of the things that I've been struck by is just this, I think most people now understand that conflict, you know, that is hostile and destructive between parents is never going to be good for children. But I think there are some interesting nuances in this literature, talking about what what might be, you know, how do we, in lockdown, it's very complex, because some families, you know, they have children are moving between households, and one family has one set of rules and one the other. What do you know is best for children in those contexts? Because there seems to be a lot of suggestion that uh, minimal contact isn't really as good as you know rich you know nighttime activities and and being able for children to experience the sort of stability across those households if that makes sense yeah i think there's a as you say there are a couple of of i think well established findings one is that clearly children can be adversely affected by conflict and particularly the conflict between their separating parents. The other well-established finding is that, on average, children do better in the long run when they're able to maintain meaningful relationships with both of their parents. So the the first issue there is the, the maintain part. You know, if children have really not had profound relationships with both parents, then it may be a slightly different 
situation uh, going forward. But for kids who've grown up with two parents, have relationships with both parents, then when those parents separate, it's important for children to recognize that the parents may be separating from each other, but that neither is wanting to separate from the children, that their love for commitment to investment in those children remains as strong as it was, and that it becomes necessary to find the circumstances and and arrangements that will allow those relationships to continue to remain strong. What's important to understand, of course, is that, that everybody is continuing to develop. And in order to keep those relationships strong, there needs to be continued meaningful interaction so that that the children and the parents understand what's going on in each other's lives, are aware of the developmental changes, are part of each other's lives in a full and complete way. And, And to have that to achieve that really does require extensive amounts of interaction in terms of the amount of time, but also interaction in a variety of different contexts. You know, the, at the, the one extreme, it's not possible to maintain a relationship with a non-resident parent when the interactions are limited to a couple of hours for a meal once a week. Rather, the the interaction needs to be more extensive. It ideally embraces the all the different aspects of each other's lives, from getting up in the morning, getting ready for school, getting to school on time. It includes, you know, the the wind down from school to the extent that kids are actually going out to school navigating the peer relationships, understanding the the conflicts that are taking place with other children, helping children negotiate those, address those issues, dealing with um, what we've just been talking about, all the limit setting and the particularly in the complexity of the whole rule setting, limit setting in contemporary lockdown times being responsible for and supervising the wind down, the end-of-day rituals, getting bath, bedtime stories, going to bed at a reasonable time. All of those things are really critical to the whole process of maintaining relationships. And that's only achieved when you have, you know, meaningful amounts of time with both parents. The the research suggests that the critical time is is somewhere between a quarter to 35% of the time spent with the, if you like, the the less involved parent is really critical to maintaining those relationships. And in, in that context, you know, the every other Saturday night and an evening meal isn't enough to keep those relationships alive and strong over time.
And yet, you know, as you're speaking, I can think of so many scenarios where a parent is is absent and not participating in a way that is beneficial for their children. And I'm seeing, you know, you see teenagers very low because they don't have that involvement that they may have had with their parent early on in their lives. And it can be very easy, I think, for, for the other parent to sort of just give up on it. And, you know, we end up with these children who who are missing the absent parent, and it does have an impact. Absolutely. And, you know, th- those, are, those are challenging questions, which are hard to, to address in the abstract or in the generalities. I mean, I think one has to look at those situations and try to determine why those longer times together are not taking place. Is it because the residential parent is imposing barriers and making it more difficult? Or is it because the non-resident parent really wants to abdicate responsibility or, or feels disempowered, feels that the relationship has been deteriorating and perhaps has deteriorated to a point where it's no longer salvageable. That's actually quite a rare outcome, I have to say. I think in most cases, you know, where there is motivation, it is possible to rehabilitate relationships, even when there have been long periods of estrangement. But it takes time, it takes commitment, it takes patience, and it takes a combination of, of both self-esteem and humility to, to recognize the, the damage that has been done and one's responsibility for it, while at the same time making the effort to, to rehabilitate. And I, I, I'm just thinking that children always want parental love and attention, and it's always worth striving for, isn't it? Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Well, Michael, we've already talked for an hour. I'm taking up an hour of your time and I could talk to you all day. But thank you so much for giving up your time and talking to me. And I've really enjoyed our chat. Great. Thanks. I have too. Have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.